is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians is God's Call to Church Action. This is part 7 entitled Triumphant in Trouble. Our text, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 17. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. You turn with me to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 2. And at verse 12, we pursue our studies in this wonderful epistle under the general title of God's Call to Church Action. This morning we enter a new phase of Paul's treatment of this great theme. As we've observed in our studies thus far, the whole section of this epistle, which is chapters 1 through 8, have to deal mainly with the subject of fellowship. It's highly biographical. The apostle is sharing with his readers the burdens that weighed so heavily upon his heart. He's spoken of the fellowship of consolation and vindication, then of explanation and restoration. But from this point onwards, he changes slightly the narrative form to dilate upon the nature of the Christian ministry. So from chapters 2, 12 through to 6, 10. We have what we shall be calling the fellowship of ministration. Under this main heading, there are no less than nine subheadings of this majestic theme that will engage our attention throughout the coming days. Here they are for those of you who would like to read and reread this epistle, as I've exhorted you so to do, and to prepare yourselves for the subjects as they come up, that they may go deeper into our lives and be implemented in action in our daily vocations and avocations. This morning, the triumph of the ministry, chapter 2, 12 through 17. Then the testimony of the ministry, living letters, God willing, next week. The transformation of the ministry, chapter 3, 7 through 18. The transparency of the ministry, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The trials of the ministry, chapter 4, 7 through 5. 7 through 15, the travail of the ministry, chapter 4, 16 through 5, 5, the object and aim or target of the ministry, chapter 5, 6 through 15, the truth of the ministry, the heart of the epistle itself, chapter 5, 16 through 21, and finally, the task, the job before us of the ministry, chapter 6, 1 through 10. So you see that before us, there's a tremendous sweep of doctrine to which we shall give our individual and detailed attention in the weeks that lie ahead. But now let's come back to our message for this morning. It's called the triumph of the ministry or triumphant in trouble. Paul introduces this whole subject by recalling his journey to Troas, where an effectual door had been opened unto him in the field of evangelism. He had hoped that Titus would have joined him on his return from Corinth. But as the weeks went by, Paul became restless in his spirit. There was no news from Corinth. Titus hadn't appeared. And the suspense of wondering what was happening at Corinth was so intolerable that he couldn't concentrate on his task. Paul was literally in trouble. I wonder how many of you as members of various churches and our own Calvary Baptist Church here has 
ever really thought through that point, that nobody needs more peace of mind in order to give himself unremittingly to prayer and to the ministry of the word of God than the preacher. And unless he is so relieved of the pressures and the travails that are purely mechanical and peripheral, he can never really get down to the task of doing the job. This was so in Paul's case. And although great door and effectual was opened unto him, Though Troas presented a tremendous opportunity of evangelism, he left that door wide open and went on his way into Macedonia. He couldn't stand the strain any longer. And presently he caught up with Titus. And the tidings which his colleague conveyed to him evoked this outburst of thanksgiving which we have in verses 14 through 17. The more we examine this pean of praise, the more evident it becomes that this is the triumph of the ministry. For effective Christian service, we must be able to react equally to situations of triumph as well as situations of defeat. Whether success or failure, the Christian should always be in triumph. And that's the teaching of these verses here. Triumph in trouble. Triumph in service. And so this morning, we are going to engage ourselves in the study of these glorious words, and I trust before we're through, every one of us in this congregation, those listening over the airwaves, will know what it is to be carried and to be led in the triumph of our glorious Savior. Notice, please, the first point here. Let us observe that the triumph of the ministry denotes, first, the sharing of a freedom in Christ. The sharing of a freedom in Christ. Read with me verse 14. Now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Weymouth translates those words as follows. To God be the thanks who in Christ ever leads us in the triumphal procession. Now, there seems to be no doubt that the apostle is here employing language to describe the picture of a Roman march of triumph. While he had not been in Rome up until this point, Paul doubtlessly had heard of the great celebration days when conquerors, returning from their conflicts, came back to the great city from whence they left, and with their victorious armies and the vanquished chained to the chariot wheels, paraded down the Via Sacra, down to the Capitoline Hill. G. Campbell Morgan points out that in such a Roman triumph, the conspicuous figures were those of the victors and the vanquished. The victors rode in triumph, while the vanquished were often chained to the chariot wheels, and the whole procession was accompanied by the burning of incense. Dr. Morgan adds, Without dogmatizing, I believe that Paul was here viewing those engaged in the ministry as the victors, describing their work as a triumphant march, and the vanquished those who had been mastered accompanying on the march. That's a tremendous picture. Can you see it? Can you see it? Paul surveys that parade. It is the triumph day. The conqueror has returned from battle. The armies are behind him. The priests behind the armies wafting the incense. And chained to those chariot wheels are the prisoners. And the parade goes down while the throngs cheer. It's triumph. The procession of triumph. Now scholars tell us 
that these processional marches had two types of prisoners. First of all, what we're going to call the commended prisoners. The commended prisoners. Christ ever leads us in his triumphal procession. These were men, and sometimes even women, who had accepted the conquest of their masters and were rejoicing as they moved along, chained to the chariot wheels. On the great day, these condemned prisoners, together with the commended prisoners, had to move with a triumphal procession. Invariably, however, these commended prisoners, who were released that very day, set free, never returned to their homes again. They remained with their masters. In the language of the slave of the Old Testament, their decision would be, I love my master, I will not go out free. Now, of course, this is one of the joys of every servant of God when he returns from his soul-winning opportunities with prisoners for Jesus Christ, chained to the chariot wheels. There is no joy in Christian service like that of returning from the scene of battle with victims hitherto bound by Satan, but now released and enslaved to Jesus Christ. I know no service which is more free, and I know no freedom which is more gloriously service than enslavement to Jesus Christ. George Matheson puts it beautifully in his hymn, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. In Paul's day, these commended prisoners realized that their conquerors were leading them into a new experience of life. Many of them hailed from downtrodden tribes, and the very fact that they'd now been taken by great conquerors, not caused them to fear, but caused them to rejoice. They were glad to be under a great power like that of Rome, and in a similar way, men and women who are set free from Satan's bondage welcome the privilege of being mastered by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They soon discover that in his service is perfect freedom. Perfect freedom. Yes, the sharing of a freedom in Christ. So much then for the commended prisoners. But there were also the condemned prisoners. Christ ever leads us in his triumphal possession. Alongside of the commended prisoners were those marked out for life imprisonment or even execution. Because of the rebellion, their refusal to submit to a new sovereignty, they had to be done away with. It's a solemn yet necessary fact to remember, my friends, that as preachers of the gospel, we've got to recognize that every time we preach, there are those who are going to accept the gospel, but there are those who are going to reject it. And by their very rejection, they condemn themselves. They condemn themselves. Yes, the servant of the Lord, in his witness to Jesus Christ, not only makes commendable prisoners, but he also makes condemned prisoners. In either case, the triumphant freedom in Christ is celebrated and God is glorified. Let me ask you a question, my friend. Do you know this triumphant freedom in Christ? Are you a commended prisoner or are you a condemned prisoner? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your conqueror, Lord? Have you dropped at his feet and said, Lord Jesus, you've set me free and by enslavement to thyself, I've come into my true manhood. Redemption is complete in me so far as this earth is concerned and one day totally complete when I see thee face to face and I'm glad to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Or as I speak this morning, 
Am I speaking to those who are self-condemned because you've never, never owned Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? You've never bowed at the cross and in that sense of utter bankruptcy need repented toward God and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, and says so clearly, he that believeth not is condemned already because he's believed not in the name of the only Son of God. Are you enslaved to Jesus Christ this morning? Then, my friend, let me tell you something. You can share with all God's servants. You can share with the church of Jesus Christ down through the centuries. What we're calling this morning triumphant ministry. For you can share the freedom of being in Christ. What freedom? The freedom of being led in the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ. That triumphal procession which he led from Calvary back to the throne in his glorious victory over sin and death and hell. But think with me again in the second place of what I'm calling the shedding of a fragrance of Christ. I want you to notice that the triumphant ministry in which you and I are involved not only denotes the sharing of a freedom in Christ, but the shedding of a fragrance of Christ. Look at verses 15 and 16. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we're a savor of death unto death, to the other a savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? In these triumphal processions, the priests carried censers of burning incense. And as they waved them to and fro, the fragrance was diffused throughout the city. And everybody knew, everybody knew who were the victors. Everybody knew who were the vanquished. As they marched down, marched down that principal street of the great metropolis of Rome. Now we too as priests unto God share in a triumphal march. And as we proceed with our Savior in the train of his triumph, we too waft the incense, the fragrance of our wonderful Savior. Or as Paul puts it here, as we proceed with our Savior, we make manifest the savor of his knowledge in every place. The fragrance of his knowledge in every place. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that we exalt the name of our conquering Lord. We exalt the name of our conquering Lord. We make manifest the savor of his knowledge in every place. The name of the Lord Jesus is his ointment poured forth, says Solomon in his Song of Solomon. His name spells salvation and deliverance from his very birth. His name was called Jesus and his name was called Jesus. Why? Because he should save his people from their sins. Peter on the day of Pentecost declared, There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby, whereby we must be delivered, set free, released, saved. That name has been exalted to highest heaven for having gone into death in obedience to the Father's will, having effected atonement for our souls. He rose again and God highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow are things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we move in the triumph of our Savior and as priests we waft the savor, the fragrance of our Lord. We diffuse his name. It's his ointment poured forth. Just like the ointment poured forth carries with it that fragrance wherever that oil, wherever that oil is applied, wherever that oil spills over, there's fragrance everywhere. So as we move in the train of the Savior's triumph, we waft 
his glorious name to men and women everywhere. Nothing should thrill our hearts more than to hear of those captured for Christ, acclaiming his rights, doing him honor, exalting his glory, speaking well of his character and courage, magnifying the name of Jesus in every place. So as the incense ascends, we exalt the name of our conquering Lord. But more than that, notice again, we extend the fame of our conquering Lord. We make manifest the savor of his knowledge in every place. Not only do we exalt his name, but we extend his fame. Not only do we pour out the oil, a fragrance which bespeaks his name, but we extend his fame in every place. Let us remember that every prisoner chained to the chariot wheels extends the fame of our conquering Lord. The more prisoners there are, the greater the volume of incense that wafts the fame of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in every place. They may be rich or poor. They may be wise or simple. They may be young or old. They may be red or yellow, black or white. They're all precious in his sight. And wherever there is a prisoner for Jesus Christ, we are extending the fame of our glorious Lord. John the seer envisages such a scene as this in a day to come when captives of Jesus Christ shall sing a new song saying, Thou art worthy, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, out of every tongue, out of every people, out of every nation. And they shall join in one and they shall say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And from every part of the globe in every generation since our Savior pioneered that triumph march, there will be people who shall extend the fame of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This ascending fragrance will be a savor of life unto life to those who've capitulated to the sovereignty of Christ. And alas, the savor of death unto death to those who rejected him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. The condemned prisoners, having reached the foot of the Capitoline Hill, were ushered into an underground prison. To them, that incense wafted by the priests was a savor of death unto death. Because of the refusal to bow to the sovereignty of their conqueror, they were ushered into that underground grave and imprisoned for the rest of their lives or executed. And alas, alas, there's coming a day when every knee shall bow to Jesus Christ. Every knee, every knee of those in heaven, those in earth, those under the earth. And to them, the fragrance of Christ will be a savor of death unto death. Once again, terrifying as this thought is, it must always be accepted in the context of the Savior's triumph. As Professor Tasker puts it, Paul is not here primarily concerned with the question of predestination. He is simply saying in Hodge's words, the great theologian, the gospel and those who preach it are well-pleasing to God whether they receive it and are saved or reject it and are lost. What a responsibility this lays upon every genuine Christian. We never live a day in the power of the Holy Spirit without exalting the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We never live a day in the power of the Holy Ghost without extending the fame of Jesus Christ. But alongside of this is the solemn truth that our witness is a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, a savor of life unto life. To the other, a savor of death unto death. The very thought of this makes us exclaim with the Apostle Paul, who, who is sufficient for these things? Who 
Who is sufficient for these things? Thank God he gives us the answer in chapter 3 and verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Our sufficiency is of God. I don't know whenever I have been so solemnized in my own spirit as when these verses first broke open to me, and now increasingly so, as we've come to study them again. This triumph march of the Savior not only spells freedom for us in Christ, so that even though chained to his chariot wheels as commended prisoners, we're glad that he's our king, and we're glad to be part of that great triumph march. But it solemnizes me to think that chained to those same triumph wheels are those who are rebellious, and who are going to be rejected forever and ever as one day they stand before the bar of God. I've never seen so, so vividly the picture portrayed by the apostle here as priests wafting the incense, speaking not only of exalting the name of the Savior, but extending his fame, and knowing that wherever I go, if I speak as an individual, if I speak as a preacher, if I speak to one, if I speak to multitudes, that message is a savor of life unto life to those that are saved, but likewise a savor of death unto death to those that are lost. And every time you witness in that office, and every time you witness in that college, and every time you witness in that home, that fragrance of Christ spells life to some, death to others. But in all, God is glorified. For Christ has made possible the salvation of everyone. And man stands responsible before God to say yes to Christ or no to Christ. He says yes and he's saved. No and he's lost. But the fragrance of Jesus goes right up to the very throne of heaven. And God is made glad. And the universe worships the triumph of the ministry. There is not one defeatist thought associated with the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, even though I've been in trouble, even though the burden upon me has been intolerable, even though I've not been able to take advantage of a door wide open because of the problems that exist in Corinth, I thank God that in this situation, desperate as it's been, Jesus Christ is triumphing. And I'm enjoying that freedom, and I'm sharing that fragrance. But let us hurry on to the great burden of this whole passage here, for Paul comes to a climax, if you notice, in that 70, 17th verse, where he says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ, or speak we in Christ. This is our third point this morning. The triumph of the ministry not only denotes the sharing of the freedom in Christ, not only describes the shedding of the fragrance of Christ, but the triumph of the ministry describes and demands the showing of a faithfulness to Christ. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. To follow the train of the Savior's triumph demands of every Christian a loyalty, first to the message of the gospel, and secondly to the ministry of the gospel. This is the substance of Paul's thought in the closing verse of this chapter. He is demanding from his readers, both at Corinth and in the Christian church, down through the centuries, two things, which are the very heart of this entire passage of triumph. Here is the first one. First of all, what we're calling faithfulness to the message of the gospel. Faithfulness to the message of the gospel. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Says Paul, 
We are following in the train of the Sages tribe. We haven't to apologize for anything we preach. We know a freedom that set us free from all we ever thought wrong about Jesus Christ. We are sold out and out to Christ. We are chained to his chariot wheels. Every time we breathe, we're like a burning incense, carrying and wafting his fame and his name. So we are not as those who corrupt the word of Christ. We are committed to a faithfulness to that message. And no one's ever going to change it. And I want you to notice what he has in mind here. The idea implicit in that word corrupt was that of hucksters or tavern owners. These people kept saloons and were notorious for adding water to the wine, thus corrupting it, diluting it, and thus making money under false pretenses. And Paul was aware that... Right there at Corinth, in the church at Corinth, there were compromising teachers and evangelists who were watering down the word of God. And I can't imagine anything more relevant than that to our scene today. Yes, there are men and women all over our country today who are watering down the word of God. I can't imagine a temptation to which any preacher can more easily succumb in our day of tolerance and compromise. But to do so is to cease to move in the train of the Savior's triumph. We're living in a day when, in a very insidious manner and fashion, our total concept of the absolute revelation that God has given us in Jesus Christ, with all its totality of message and standard, is now completely, completely discredited. To ever say that we have an unqualified revelation of God in Jesus Christ and that the gospel is complete in itself, cannot be added to or subtracted from, to say that we speak with absolute authority, to say that we have the infallible word of God before us with true inerrancy in all the connotations of that word, is to be turned fanatic, is to be turned utterly out of date. Because we're living in an age and we're living in an hour when the word of God has been watered down and it's been diluted. And anybody standing and preaching as I am is totally backdated. And the leaders in this field are theologians. But I want to remind you people here this morning, as God gives me grace to stand behind this sacred desk, that whatever men may say, whatever criticisms they may attack me with, however hot the hostility is, whatever the antagonism is, There is one who has triumphed, and he's pioneered that triumph, and he's leading in that procession of triumph. And as long as I'm chained to the chariot wheels of Jesus Christ, I will not identify myself with those who corrupt the word of God. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Paul says, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be damned. Let him be accursed. And we cannot overlook the exhortation from the pen of Jude, the brother of James, when he urges his readers to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. God make us ever faithful to the message of the gospel, especially in these days of the departure from the faith. I want you to pray for your preacher. I want you to pray for your pastors back home. And I want you to pray for those of us who have to stand against a tremendous cross-current today, an opposition such as I never anticipated would ever occur in our generation. The whole sweeping tide of literature and of preaching and of compromise and of dialogue 
and of tolerance and of indifference to the message of the gospel sweeps over us like a great Niagara Falls at times. And I wonder just how we could ever get through. And then I'm reminded of this glorious passage. Thanks be unto God who carries us in the train of the Savior's triumph. And as long as, as I'm in that train of his triumph, thank God we didn't corrupt the word of God. Faithfulness to the message of the gospel. But right alongside of that, I want you to notice in the second place, faithfulness to the ministry of the gospel. And that isn't a play on words. It's something which is absolutely essential. For the message hasn't a clear enunciation if the messenger isn't right. And so Paul says not only faithfulness to the message of the gospel, but faithfulness to the ministry of the gospel. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. J.B. Phillips renders the closing words of this verse in this fashion. In the name of God, under the eyes of God, as Christ's chosen ministers. The one word which we should lift out of this text is that word, sincerity. The one word which describes our ministry in the name of God is that of sincerity. He says here, but as of sincerity. It implies the fact that our service is ever performed under the eyes of God. Under the eyes of God. What a transformation would come into our Christian work if every one of us here, Sunday school teachers, those of us who witness in our offices and banks and colleges, housewives here, all of us, preachers, missionaries, if every one of us served our God with the knowledge that he was ever looking down upon us, or to use the words of Hagar of old, Thou God seest me. Thou God seest me. Let me read J.B. Phillips' translation again. You get the force of this. In the name of God, under the eyes of God, as Christ's chosen ministers. In the name of God, under the eyes of God, as God's chosen ministers. Only those who live and serve in the unsolid light of God's presence will be able to stand before the brightness of the judgment seat of Christ to answer for our ministry here upon earth. And only those who've been able to recognize the favor of God upon all they've done and said here upon earth will hear the Master say with light in his eyes in that day, well done, well done, good and faithful ministry. You've been not only faithful to the message of the gospel, but to the ministry of the gospel. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And I want to tell you that God has been going deeper and deeper into my soul on this score in last few year, years, and particularly, if I may say so, even the last few months. For I'm telling you it's the easiest thing in the world to give way, to succumb to this pressure for tolerance. And I mean tolerance in that very vicious and subtle form in which it's interpreted today. Tolerance. After all, see the other man's point of view. My question isn't the other man's point of view. It isn't my point of view. But what does God say? I'm under God. I'm under his eye. I'm a chosen minister. And my faithfulness must be to the message of Christ, to the ministry of Christ. I care not whose point of view is involved. It's God who matters, not man. And the man who lives under the vigilance and eyes of God now is the man who will look into the face of Jesus Christ unashamed in that coming day. 
And I'm telling you that we're living in a day where we care so much about what this man says and that man says and how she feels and how that person reacts that we become totally involved at this emotional level so that God doesn't come into it at all so long as we're respectable in the society and the group in which we move and as long as we're accepted and we belong that's all that matters and I'm telling you that runs utterly contrary to what Paul is teaching us here. And I want to tell you, my friend, the day you get liberated from that, the day you get liberated from that, you're in the train of the Savior's triumph. As dear old George Muller once put it, he said, there came a day in my life when I died to the opinion of my brethren. He was set free. He was set free. Have you been set free, my friend? Is that life of yours a constant fragrance of Jesus Christ? Or does it carry the smell of other people's opinions? Tell me, is that life of yours utterly faithful? Or are you amongst those who corrupt the word of God? So we have seen, my friends, we have seen that God's call to action, God's call to action must be characterized by a freedom in Christ, a fragrance of Christ, and a faithfulness to Christ. Only such quality of service can be termed the triumph of the ministry. As we work for God, may we ever be able to sing Thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge in every place. And in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Do you want a prayer, my friend, for this morning? Do you want to know triumph in your life? Do you want to follow in the train of the Saviour's triumph? Let me share some words with you as we close this morning, and I want you to make them your prayer, deep down in your heart. Saviour, lead us in thy triumph as we serve thee day by day. Let us know thy perfect freedom as we battle in the fray. Savior, lead us in thy triumph as we live by faith in thee. May our lives exude the fragrance of thy love and victory. Savior, lead us in thy triumph as we preach thy holy word. Make us faithful as thy servants, owning thee as Christ. The Lord, let us pray. Let's have a moment of quietness. Let us review again in our hearts whether or not we're found this morning in the train of the Savior's triumph. If we are, may I ask, are you a condemned prisoner because of rebellion, moving on to eternal doom? Or are you a commended prisoner because you've owned the sovereignty of Jesus Christ? Do you know his freedom? Are you shedding his fragrance? Are you showing his faithfulness? by your total commitment to his message and ministry. Are you in the train of the Savior's triumph? If not, my friend, this morning, lay hold of Christ. Lay hold of him. And say, O thou Son of God who died to set me free, to release in me thy life and fragrance, to involve me in total faithfulness to thy message and ministry. Be thou Savior, Lord, and King of my life. Our Father, we commend to thee the ministry of this moment and ask, O Lord, that thou will just take the word that has been delivered and cause it to be the release to many who have been troubled hitherto and therefore defeated. It may be triumph henceforth and forever. We ask it for thy blessed name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources, 
or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.